Welcome to the School Business Leadership Podcast. Today, Michael Metcalf returns to the show to talk about all things financial benchmarking. If this is a topic that makes you feel overwhelmed and confused, then this episode is for you. We talk about the benefits of benchmarking, how to get started, where context fits into the process, and various ways you can use benchmarking information to support your financial reporting to your head, SLT and LGB. And because it's us, we didn't stop there. Again, we talked about governance, Ofsted, the ESFA, the DFE, the SRMA role, and maths in terms of growth, central team structures, and what we think the future holds for education generally. Really, there is nowhere we won't go. It's another corker. Let's dive in. And on today's episode, I'm joined by Michael Metcalf. Mycon is an experienced school business professional and multi-academy trust executive leader. She's worked in finance and operations in a range of schools and academy trusts and is currently the chief financial officer of the Diocese of Westminster Academy Trust. Prior to this, Mycon was chief operating officer for Inspiration Trust. She's a member of the DFE expert group, which authored the standard for teachers' professional development and contributed to the new specification for the national professional qualifications. Mycon is also a member of the Children's Commissioner's Audit and Risk Committee. Mycon holds the Advanced Professional Qualification in School Financial and Operational Leadership and is a DFE-accredited School Resource Management Advisor. Today, Mycon is joining me to talk about financial benchmarking. And I am so glad because lots of people ask me about this. And I think that as much as we need to explain it, it also needs a bit of myth-busting as well. So welcome, Mycon. Hi. Financial benchmarking. So many business managers talk to me about this. And I think there's a fear of the unknown, and also for those that have had some experience with it, a feeling of how much value does this really add, I think might be the way to say it. What are your views on it? Well, so so going back a few years, I actually did a conference speech um, and I was talking about benchmarking a little bit, but it very much in quite a sort of negative point of view. So, um, you know, the benchmarking information that we had that was published was always out of date. Um, the, mm-hmm. the sort of onset of the academy sector had had kind of lost a little bit of the consistency. So although maintained schools retain consistent financial reporting, at the early days of the academy program, there was a little bit of a wobble between what we were re- reporting and what we were recording against certain lines and, and what was then being published online. And, and I think there was a general sense that benchmarking wasn't really relevant it didn't pick out you know key themes you would get you'd get your sort of scorecard and it it just didn't really match what it was that you you know the, 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 the issues that were pulled out didn't match anything that you thought you knew about your context and I, and I think that's mm. where I was and I think that's where a lot of people were I have to say I've almost gone a full sort of, you know, 360 on this. So it's at 180. So it's a, a full full turnaround. And I think there's a number of reasons that I've done that. One, the really where I started to become more interested in it again, and actually it's what got me back into really enjoying the, the financial and um, operational side of things, was when I did the SIPFA advanced certificate in financial Academy Financial Finance and Operations. And there was a there was um one element of that, one of the modules is on curriculum planning. 
and what what was referred to as curriculum arithmetic. And that is what we would now call sort of integrated curriculum-led financial planning, ICFP. Sometimes it's called curriculum-led financial planning. But what was great about the course was we we, we actually learned the maths. You know, it, it's it's a number of sort of fairly basic calculations and it's been around for years. So anyone who remembers when Sam Ellis was at ASCOR, he had his little presentation on the equation of life. And you take your budget, mm. you have so much to, you know, you, you know you need to spend 20 or 25% on the rest. And the 75, 80%, that's staffing. And the decisions that you make around staffing, the deployment of staffing, your, your curriculum plan, your class sizes and everything else really define how your school operates and, and the education that you can deliver. So that was the sort of first really piqued my interest in how do we really start to analyse what good value looks like and whether savings can be made. And then I um, became a school resource management advisor again in about um, probably about 2018. And um, the, the department, I have to say, had sort of jumped on ICFP a little bit, um, but I don't think they were advocating mm. anything that, that wasn't already um, there in the sort of equation of life. And, and it's this concept that your teaching staff in a school should be teaching, it's, it's 0.78, so 78% of, of teacher time should be spent delivering teaching, about 80% in a primary. And, and when you look at it that way and start thinking about it and start looking at your own school or other schools, I mean, on all my SRMA deployments, very rare to come across a school where teaching staff were deployed fully um, at 0.78. You know, you would see ratios as low as 69%. So, you know, 31% of teacher time, which is the most expensive time, you know, that the, they're the most expensive resource in the school, is not going on teaching. Now, you know, you, mm. you can argue, can't you, that, teachers need time and and I will always say when I'm doing this work I'll always say um yeah give teachers as much time as you can but the curriculum financial planning and it is a type of benchmarking will tell you sort of what what you can save if you had slightly bigger classes or fewer groups so if you want to protect that time for teachers um, maybe they need to teach slightly bigger groups or you perhaps teach a slightly smaller curriculum. So, so it's, a re- you know, doing that, that work, looking at those numbers gives you the opportunity to ask yourself questions. Could we do it differently? Would, would that be as successful? Would our results be as good? Would they be worse? Would they be better? Could we make sure that our teachers don't have to have really heavy timetables, but we'll ask them to teach slightly bigger classes? Um, so, so that's what really piqued my interest in that. And it's it's fascinating if you if you do the work and, and you, you know, you learn how to apply ICFP. Because as, as an SRMA, you tend to see, particularly schools which are facing financial challenges, you tend to see the same thing. So you will see teachers not deployed perhaps as effectively as they could be. You you might see sort of classes that are smaller than um, the benchmarks. So there are, again, benchmarks around average class size or pupil-teacher ratios. 
Um, so all, all of these things will feed into giving you a picture about the school or your school and whether whether there are choices to be made that would would make your budget work. If you know if you're facing a deficit budget, there are choices to be made there. I think I, I'm talking a lot about staffing and, and I think you know it goes back to it's a school's budget goes on staffing and the rest, and the rest is pretty much fixed and it's quite a small number. Yeah. But but there are now um quite recently the DFE launched something called View My Financial Insights, and it's a website and schools can actually um get get their benchmarking information and and um you can you you, you know there are a range of metrics and you're compared against similar schools. It's great for multi-academy trusts because if, if you've got similar schools within your trust, you can actually look at whether there are differences or similarities across your schools. And you can, you know, you can make assessments about, well, you know, is one school managing to be more, more efficient with its staffing? And is it, is it able to produce as good a results? And start to, you know, you can start to ask yourself, why, why is that? One of the one of the things I hear a lot is, but our context, our context isn't the same as the benchmark set. Our school's different. We have more challenges. We have, uh, you know, there'll be more challenges around SEND. There'll be more challenges around um, pupil behaviour, mental health needs. All of that is true. Every school will have its own challenges and its own context. But I don't, I don't know that that should stop you from looking and thinking and asking questions. And, and that's that's why I think benchmarking is a really useful tool for people to use, to, to start posing some questions around it. And, and for, from a school business leader point of view, this should be our bread and butter. You know, if it, it, it's something, you know, it, it needs to become sort of mandatory training and and it goes to the heart of school business leaders being on leadership teams. You know, they're not there necessarily to sort of decide the curriculum, but what they can do is use these tools and show different options and show school leaders what the what the decision is, you know, what what decisions they're making around staffing deployment and what the costs are. Um, I was talking to a CEO the other day and he's he had, um, implemented ICFP in his schools in his previous trust, and he people he would sort of have conversations with lead with leaders, so with the head teachers of the schools in his trust around you know if you give somebody a TLR and you give them time, the TLR might cost you twelve thousand pounds or, or however much with on costs, but if you give them two periods, cost of a period is three and a half thousand pounds, so that's another. Seven thousand pounds, and and actually starting, you know, what he'd started to do was apply a monetary value to any decision you made, and and mm. we often in, in our sector will often say, well, well, you know, but it shouldn't be about the money; it's about the children, isn't it? The children should get what they need. And his background had been, um, he'd started out, he studied law, and then he'd started out uh, training as an accountant, and. In other professions, everything you do is costed, isn't it? You know, a lawyer will bill, they have their billable hours, so will accountants. And it's just 
benchmarking allows us to start to apply some of that commercial thinking to the decisions we make around delivering education. When funding is increasingly tight, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to apologize for that, actually. The more information we have, the more choices we can give ourselves, I think that the, the better place we are to make the right decisions to deliver excellent education. I think, like you say, ICFP has been around in other forms, maybe not as codified or as explicit as it is now. Mm. You know, it's been around for a while, mm. hasn't it? Yeah. And it does allow yeah. that yeah. curriculum the curriculum narrative to to meet the financial yeah. narrative and to see whether they match and whether they achieve efficiencies. Yeah. My understanding of ICFP, I think when it first came out, was yes, that everyone should be doing it, but it was more primarily for those schools who were in financial difficulties to, mm. to kind of get a detailed overview of what was going on and where efficiencies could be made. And I think yeah. also there were question marks about how effective this process was in primary schools. Has that changed? Well, I think it can. And and I know this is this is a really controversial subject. And um, I know that uh, certainly the NAHT was very opposed to ICFP and its use in primary schools. But but actually, when um, when I was at Dunraven and we opened our primary phase, I, I did sort of use a very basic bit of curriculum arithmetic to look at teacher deployment and specifically um teaching assistant and support staff deployment. And what we did was, you know, we, we yes, you don't have the periods and, and the time like you do in secondary schools, but you do need to keep a sense of actually how, how much teaching are my teachers doing? So, so theoretically in a primary school, and again, I say theoretically because this is based on perfect metrics, the, the ratio is 80%. So teachers should, you know, overall, teachers should be deployed for 80% of the time. But lots of primary schools, you know, we've moved away from the teacher teaching the whole class, the whole curriculum. So we'll often see sports coaches come in and take a class. We'll see language teachers come in and take a class. And that's all that often the teacher will get, if you like, bonus release time then. You've got teaching assistants who might be supervising the class with that um, with with that sort of bought in tutor or teacher time. So I think you can you can use the metrics. You can divide your day into you know I used to divide our primary day into before break, after break, and after lunch because those were broadly similar chunks of time. Some will just do morning and afternoon and look at it that way. But you can actually start to um, ask yourself whether teachers are deployed effectively and whether the time that you're giving them is really being mapped effectively as planning or management time. It, it, it is controversial. Uh, one, of, one of the things um, from you know, the SRMA programme you see is that there are some sort of typical things we see and in a primary school, it, it will often be too, uh, uh, never too many leaders, but primary schools only ever used to have a head and a deputy. It's not unusual now, even in a fairly small primary school, to see a head teacher and a couple of deputy head teachers plus TLR post holders, all kind of needing management time. And, you know, there's been an increase in the demands on school leaders and, and on um, curriculum leaders with the Ofsted framework. And then on top of that, you'll often see a lot of um, teaching assistants and SEN support assistants. 
and you won't always see really effective deployment. So, so in a well-run school, they they'll have it nailed. You know, they'll have they'll they'll have have it very tightly timetabled. You'll have interventions. Support staff will be well deployed, not just teaching classes, but taking small groups, and um, that will release teachers for planning and, and collaborative working. But but a lot of schools, you you know, that are struggling to balance their budgets, you'll see quite the opposite. You'll see a lot of leaders, a lot a lot of time not spent teaching. So perhaps, you know, only 65 to 70% of the time spent on teaching rather than nearer the, the, the 80% benchmark. And you'll only really know if you look at your benchmarking information and, and you, you compare yourself. So, you know, do you have a high, if you have a high average teacher cost in a primary school, that may be because you've got a number of people on, on leadership pay scales and and again, it's not to say you need to change, but it's to know how you compare and you know, you know, where you fit within schools that have been sort of the department kind of will define schools to be broadly similar. So, you know, they they'll you'll be compared with urban high free school meal schools up to a certain size. If you're, you know, they'll they'll look at particular metrics. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to change anything you do, but but I think you should question it. You sh you should question it, and you should look at other schools and say, well, are they more effective spending less than us? And if they are, why wouldn't you want to know why? And I suppose also coming back to context, it may be a tool to help you justify the decisions that you've made. We are aware we are different to yep. similar schools because we have chosen to do X, which is more effective for our specific school. Yeah, ab absolutely that. And, um, you know, using using that approach, you know, there are, there's a model in, um, it's called the Angel Oak model, and it was developed at Angel Oak School by Step Academy Trust. And they 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 tended to have three teachers across two year groups, but it was at the expense of having teaching assistants allocated to each class. But they, you know, they used that, the metrics to make decisions because they wanted, but for those children in that school, they wanted more qualified teachers so that they could teach in smaller groups and do more sort of, sort of specialised intervention work. And it was very successful. The school was very successful and, and got very good results, you know, really, really made a difference. You, you could say it's leadership. It might not have been that. It could have been the way it was led. But you know, they they used that. They used the information they had to make choices about how they were going to deliver learning in that school. So it's not just a tool to primarily. Yes, it is to develop effectiveness and efficiency and achieve you know financial sustainability. Of course, especially if you are struggling financially. But actually. It's in a simpler term, a leadership tool to help understand your your context, look at the nuts and bolts and make decisions and inform decisions about whether you should run that option, you know, whether you can afford to run the smaller group sizes that you'd like to do. Because we all sit in SLT meetings, don't we, and say, yeah. what we want to do is, and you have this long list of demands, and until yeah. you put a pound sign on it, it's very hard to say that's a good idea or not. Yeah, that's, you've hit the nail on the head, Laura. It, it, is, a, it is a leadership tool and it should be there to help inform your planning to deliver the best education you can. What we can't do is separate the planning from the resources mm -hmm. available to us. And, and it, you know, the, the political argument around school funding 
is what it is, and we, we will all have our views on that. But the government of the day have decided how much they, they want to fund schools by. And they've also, you know, they've looked at the data. They've looked at the, the reserves in the system. And, and they've also looked at the kind of the cuts that other public services have had and sort of question why schools should be different when, when politically there is a move to sort of have efficient and cost-effective public services. So, you know, I, I don't want to get into the political argument of that. We, we kind of have to make it work within the funding that's available. And we can make our representations. Mm. You know, I'm the first person to tell the department that SEND funding and capital funding needs some serious thinking. I, I'm, I'm less so. I think revenue funding, we, we need to look at the spread of revenue funding and the you know, the discrepancies between some authorities and others. But most trusts that are, that are really using a tool like this have seen sort of quite big changes in the profile of their, um, of their expenditure. You know, they have, they have sort of um, moved towards more balanced budgets, and that's not necessarily been to the detriment of the education that they're providing. Could you argue that when, when there was... And, you know, there was a lot of money, you know, those years from 2008, 2007, the, the sort of labour years, education was incredibly well funded. So, mm. I, I, you know, I sometimes wonder, did, did we think about these tools that we had? We didn't we didn't think about them anymore, did we? Because we had enough to you didn't need to put, on that, yeah, put that extra group on or make the class sizes smaller. So, so I think it's you know, it's a harder readjustment for us because we 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 have time. Yeah, well, London certainly. I, I know people um, people in other areas would say, "No, Mike, on you're wrong." We were never well funded, but um, you know, certainly Inner London did pretty well in those years. I'm not going to be popular saying this, am I? <laughs> <laughs> I think we give back to a leadership tool, though, this idea of education as a collaborative sector as well. We learn from others. Yeah. It doesn't mean to say we have to do the same as everybody else, but there are yeah. things that other people are doing in other schools that we wouldn't necessarily be able to share without these kinds of tools. And I think it is about the lens through which you see it. You know, is it something you feel that you have to be a slave to that feels mm -hmm. like another process or another thing to be debated? Or is it something that you can use to your advantage and, and get you to yeah. where you need to be? And, yeah, and it's the latter. And I, th I think, you know, maybe maybe the, the kind of narrative around the school resource management advisor, you know, <laughs> Lord Agnew, when he, when he was at the department, sort of, you know, what did he say? He was going to give someone a bottle of champagne if, if they didn't find any savings. And I think it, you yeah. know, I think he meant well, but it was a little bit of a reductive argument you know, reductive argument in that it, it just became around cost cutting. And it is, you know, yes, we have to, you know, you have to quantify the value of the SRMA programme. So it is focused on what what savings are identified and which ones the trust sort of wants to take forward. But certainly I would always present it as there are choices to be made and some choices will be bad choices, you know, cutting a curriculum offer for a struggling sixth form might might be a bad a bad decision because it might mean that the, the sixth form contracts so much that it doesn't become viable. So you know you have to 
the, the, the challenge for the school leader would be how much to invest in that loss leading provision in order to build numbers. And, and that's the beauty of having a management tool. You kind of know, you know what you're committing, you know what you're uh, effectively you're taking from other provision in order to sort of go with that loss leader. And, and you can, you know, you could set yourself a timescale, couldn't you, to, and, and some targets around pupil recruitment to, to, to see that it worked rather than just continuing with something that isn't going to work. You know that that for me is the intellectual challenge of it. What 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 can what can we learn and 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 what choices can we make in order to in order to run the school we want to run? I know we've already been talking about political points, so I'm going to take it to another level now. <laughs> Bear with me. In terms of ICFP and financial efficiencies and the SRMA role. You know, what about Ofsted's role in terms of linking this together? Because they are obviously hot on the curriculum, the broad and balanced mm. curriculum, and mm. are very keen that leaders justify their choices. So I know this is a part of that. Yeah. But obviously, Ofsted value for money, how far does that go and should that go, do you think? I mean, there's there's an argument for a sort of an holistic approach to sort of inspecting and judging schools but but that's not resolved at departmental level yet is that you've got the regional schools commissioners dealing on the one side with school standards and you've got the ESFA dealing with the sort of financial and governance side and we've started to see a slight move with the what, what was the academy's financial handbook now being the academy trust handbook and, and encompassing yeah a broader range of metrics and, and issues for governors to look at and check on. So it may be that there is a move to look at it all in a more holistic way. The challenge, I think, with Ofsted would be about having sufficient, you know, having sufficient time and sufficient inspectors who could really get, get underneath it and understand it. Or, or whether, you know, small schools had school resource management advisor reports, whether whether they did look at sort of, whether they looked at sort of implementation of those or, or anything in the development plan. I, I don't know. I mean, you could end up with just even more stuff, you know, more stuff for leaders to sort out and and, and kind of put in a format that Ofsted would, would deal with. So, so I'm, I'm on the fence whether Ofsted is, is the right body to do that. The, the danger is where a school might have made a decision to cut certain subjects or to deliver, a, you know, deliver a curriculum, a, a key, the obvious one is delivering key stage four over three years, not two. And we sometimes yeah. see that as a sort of, you know, a thought that that's restricted children's choice and their access to a broad and balanced curriculum. So, so we have to sort of, you know, how do you make those curriculum choices if you if you have to, particularly a you know small school. I'm thinking of secondary with perhaps 100, 100 120 intake. It's quite a challenge, isn't it, to offer that broad breadth and depth of subjects that. Um, a school taking in two, 240 pupils can but but it, you know at the same time it's right that Ofsted insists that there is a good curriculum in every school so it's up it's up to leaders really 
to set that out, isn't it? And I guess in your curriculum intent, set out what the constraints are. From the benchmarking. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, if, if you've made a decision to, to, to limit access to some elements of the arts or some elements of design and technology, you, you would need to be clear what, why that was, what the constraints were. And it might be group sizes, it, it might be availability of teachers, but but I don't I don't know how Ofsted would take it. <laughs> it might depend on the inspector on the day, might it? <laughs> I think there was also a move, wasn't there, about multi-academy trust inspections yeah. and where yeah. you know the financial elements would sit within that. And I suppose, you know, moving that out from an individual school, if they are coming in to talk to trust mm. about financial management, like you say, it's Mm. I'm not advocating that Ofsted starts inspecting finance just in case anyone listening thinks that's where I'm going. But mm. I think, you know, we're, we're saying in some ways you can't divorce, you know, educational outcomes and efficiencies from finance. So where does that conversation mm. sit, especially as a mat? Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a really interesting one. And I, I back when conferences, the last time I was, I think, at the Academy show when it was live, Ofsted were talking about they'd done some pilot inspections of multi-academy trusts as well as the you know the focused inspections of schools within a trust they had done some pilots of, mm. of trusts and there was that sort of tension between what was the sort of what was Ofsted's role and what was the ESFA's role and whether they're a schools inspectorate yeah. or whether they're looking at sort of how how the schools are run by the controlling organization and and I think the the early inspections found that you know some schools were very very strong on school improvement really strong but the the academies felt less well supported around hr finance business you know because the schools that the trust leaders strengths were school improvement and and rapid pace of change and and others felt sort of well yes we we get great central services around finance it or anything else but school improvement you know we're autonomous that doesn't affect us there's probably I think as trusts get bigger and we're you know we're talking about some with hundreds of millions of funding for education um, many with sort of you know 50 million plus how how do you sort of how are you assured that, that 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 the right decisions are being made around the schools and school standards is one element isn't it but the sort of financial yeah. sustainability has to be another um and and I think whilst I you know I, I I'm loath to sort of open up to even more regulation and, and scrutiny um I, th- I think there is a conversation to be had about sort of optimum size and scale of central teams the the, the kind of efficacy of, of gag pooling for as an example so sort of centrally pooled resources and and maybe it's not Ofsted but there certainly need to be some clear case studies of what what is working really well and what you know where do we see the major fault lines because we do see them in the um, notices to improve don't we yes I know you share them quite regularly on Twitter (laughs) (laughs) bit CPD and and often it is you know it's it's around trusts not nest or trustees in particular not knowing what's going on 
either in individual academies or or in you know not not having the mechanism to hold the executive to account so it's you know so that I mean, it was strain off benchmarking a little bit but it is all interconnected in the in an academy trust the directors really need to have this type of information so that they can you know they need this, the information around standards and performance but they do need some really good financial information that will will give them sort of key performance indicators or benchmarks you know around executive pay around senior leadership salaries around the average teacher cost so that that they can understand whether there are any red flags in terms of the the, the sort of overarching metrics of the trust i suppose it's financial stewardship isn't it in terms of yeah. we're saying finance to Ofsted there is a bit in the middle isn't there this financial governance and yes. probity and the yeah. assurances that sit there and I think that may be where Ofsted and the ESFA in terms of their remit kind of meet in the middle isn't it and it's the Academy Trust Handbook now it's the governance handbook and I suppose that's where it all sits in terms of accountability for decisions that have been made and the way that money has been spent and, and you know, one of the things the direct the, the directors now there's this move towards being really clear that the directors they run the charity that runs the schools, so they have to have you know they have to have enough understanding and get enough information to understand that the schools are, well, are run as well as they can be, that they are going to be financially sustainable. So, you know, trust wide benchmarking information for for financial metrics is probably as important as standards metrics. And, you know, often, the you know, the interest in dashboard information is around sort of Ofsted grade. It, it'll be around, you know, progress measures, um, around current performance data. But if you could find a way of sort of putting in perhaps things like some key costs, like, you know, average teacher cost or pupil-teacher ratio or average absence per teacher because that's an area where you know some schools are spending a phenomenal amount on supply teaching and others very little and actually if you looked mm. at it holistically you know the cost of a lesson in that in each academy you could start to sort of paint a picture of whether whether one school on on the, that kind of benchmarking information looks to be doing better with less resource because if it is yeah it, you, you want to know why, don't you? If if it is, if one school is doing better, performing better on less resource, and is showing, you know, higher attendance, better staff, you know, it could it can be even be staff satisfaction. Then, you, as a as a director of a trust or an executive, you you'd want to sort of shine a light on good practice and understand why that school is being successful, perhaps more successful than others on on less resource. I think also coming back to the core data, it also it allows leaders to scaffold discussions around the choices they've been made in that if governors or trust leaders don't agree with them. So it can say, well, actually, you have done this and the impact is this and we can see that here rather than getting into, you know, an ideological debate about why decisions have been made because they know what's best for their school, full stop. Yeah, it's, that's a really important point, actually, that, that having this kind of information for trust leaders, particularly the CEO, the sort of the, the, 
um, line managers, of head teachers, they have a tool to sort of pose questions and sort of hold to account around performance across, you know, a range of metrics. And it takes away the emotion and the kind of the unresearched information, you know, it takes away the arguments yeah. around, but our context different, you know, because it, it, again, if you're responsible for several schools, you can say, well, you, you know, your context is no different from this school. Yeah. Or, you know, did you realise that your average teacher cost is much higher than, or your TLR bill is bigger? It, it starts to, um, it, it, it's a mechanism for holding to account as well as leaders to sort of question but but I think it you know it the, the system has been incredibly autonomous and head te- you know by their natures head teachers become head teachers because they want that autonomy you know they're in charge of big school 12 14 1500 children 120 150 staff you know you you are running a little micro business within that so I think you know there's there's a two sort of pronged approach. One is around making sure that talking about resource management in this way isn't seen as something we shouldn't do. That that you know we're not we're not being government stooges by doing this. It's not there to just save money or to let the DfE off the hook for not funding schools properly. It is there as a tool for us to to work within the constraints that we have. I think in every scenario we've just covered, it was a conversation starter, whether that be, like we've just said, around line management or whether it be about, you know, we need to make some cuts. We don't know where are we as efficient as possible or we're going to make some decisions. We need some information. The benchmarking almost appears to be the first step of any process that we've kind of explored. Yeah, I I think it has to be. It just gives you a range of, you know, we, we talk a lot about sort of, you know, basing our decisions on research and and this is as close as it gets in in the financial side isn't it because it allows us to just analyze what others are doing and 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 relative successes you know sometimes and I have done this with SRMA deployments I've, I've looked for benchmark sets and sort of looked for schools that on the face of it have been doing much better on the financial metrics but if you dig under you know you've got to dig a bit deeper and you find that actually those schools may have financial deficits as well so so you you know you you've got to you've got to use that information intelligently and and sort of make sure that you know you're not making assumptions that aren't correct but but yeah it's it for for me it it, it just gives you some areas that you could look at and if you see you know if you see some big discrepancies one, it could be you've got your benchmarking wrong. So if your benchmarking looks really, really out of sync, you might have you might have coded something wrong. <laughs> so there's always that. But but yeah. the other thing, once you once you're satisfied that that it's good data, it might just flag something up to you that you you wouldn't have thought about, and and it might make you know it might give you a focus for the following year. But, but even even without the the sort of published benchmarking, there's some basic stuff just around what do we spend on staffing and the rest is our budget you know if our budget isn't balanced and we're spending over eighty eighty five percent on staffing, our budget is very unlikely to balance 
we're going to have to make some decisions, aren't we? And that, and that's a very simplistic metric, but but it goes it goes to the heart of it. You know, we can spend this much on staffing. So how are we going to deploy those staff, and and how are we going to look at our curriculum in order to deploy them as effectively as we can? Bringing this straight back into school business management and the school business manager in the school, mm-hmm. what should business managers do who, or maybe in a school where it's we're talking about curriculum, it's nothing to do with you. You know, they don't get access to those discussions or those meetings or they don't get a voice. You know, what would we say to them? So I, th- I think it, it's really challenging if if you are literally just sort of being expected to find massive procurement savings or, or, or huge grants that, that are pie in the sky and not being involved in discussions around what 80 percent plus of the resource goes on I think being confident to talk about some of the metrics to be able to do some of the calculations and just effectively a very brief presentation that says you know our teacher contact ratio is this I I sometimes do this as training for, for governors you know I'll do a very quick I've got the published information about your school this is what it looks like and and this is the average for a similar school. And, and I think doing that is quite powerful and, and understanding. But but in the end, it, it's a difficult one, isn't it? If you don't have access to governors to say, well, you know, I'm I can't recommend this budget or this will this will take us into deficit. And that's where it's it's hard if you don't have that sort of professional standing to say you know I can't do this and I can't recommend it and I think if you really are that far away from the the holistic decision making and I I don't mean the business manager sitting there and saying you've got to cut five teachers and my metrics say that you can do that it's again about being the person who has the information and presents several options to say well you know could we look at not replacing this role in order to put the new role that you're talking about in could could we look at perhaps having bigger class sizes it's it's having the information and sort of if you like presenting it in different flavors so that people can think about it I think if you're really 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 not allowed into that space then um you know practice your curriculum arithmetic and take it somewhere else where it'll be appreciated <laughs> like you say how you present that information is important I always say you know when we're trying to share information the person Mm -hmm. listening is always thinking how will this either benefit me or how will this impact me and I think yeah from that premise that that presentation can be really powerful so if they're not Mm -hmm. listening now they could do if you can present it and access it in a way that comes across with all of that that element if that makes sense yeah and, and I think I think it's difficult because you know a lot of the, we we haven't got to the the point in the sector yet where where consistently there there's really excellent resource management and that 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 resources you know that there is that level of thinking going into resource deployment mm. because it, it's emotion. Well, that there's a number of reasons. One is you know that the won't someone think about the children argument so <laughs> there's always that isn't there the children yeah. we can't deliver the education and, and 
it's very hard sometimes to see how you how you could do it differently and um you know the change is so immense that and and everything is so busy that that really being told you've got to lose three five teachers and some support staff is just going to fill you with with horror isn't it i think there's the there's the need for leaders to understand that they they you know they have to set balanced budgets and that that's that's the requirement and that you know the council may provide some kind of backstop for a maintained school, but certainly in the academy sector, th- there's no backstop. You know, if the directors um, don't have the oversight of the budget and, and the, there is an overarching deficit, they will have a financial or notice to improve. They may face sort of being barred as directors. The CFO likely will go, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, you know, from our point of view as trust leaders, we have to be clear with people that we can't allow it to happen. So we have to intervene if if they're not able to sort of make the decisions that we're asking them to make in order to set balanced budgets. And and I think, you know, the third element is we can we can lobby for and we can raise the issue of how education funding has been cut but it's not going to change anytime soon you know it's the autumn before we see uh, that the kind of public sector settlement there is a government that sort of has been through austerity is in favor of smaller public services and now has a sort of big bill to pay back from a pandemic it's not going to be easy is it so I I think you know, collectively, professionals, and I mean the sort of teaching professionals and the business professionals need to, to to sort of engage with the tools that are there in order to do the best that they can to to sort of deliver education whilst sort of whilst not overspending that the money that's available. If there are school business managers listening to this and thinking, okay. I get it now, but where on earth do I start? You know, I want to do benchmarking. You know, I want to get my information. I want to to find out as much as I possibly can. Where should they go? So, you know, the, there are lots of courses around at the moment. In, um, I think it was about April time, the DfE actually put on some free training, which was an introduction to ICFP and benchmarking. They do lots of webinars around the View My Financial Insights tool, and there's lots of, you know, even ASCO do training, a lot of private providers do training, and ISBL has courses on ICFP as well. So I think seek out some training. Some of it is free. Ask people, you know, if they're using it and can can you come and have a look. A lot of the trusts are quite, you know, quite generous with their time to sort of talk through the approach they take. Look at you know. Look at the school resource management tools. I, I used to I used to sort of really knock the department a lot, and you know, I, I, you know, so I'm I'm not being paid, but I am paid by them when I do SRMA work. But the, I think they are. I think there is a definite move in the department to sort of recognise the need for highly skilled business professionals who really understand this stuff. You know. So, so I think I think they get us and they get the need for us. 
So mm. use the use the information that's there, engage with it sort of when there are any consultations or you know, ask for, for practitioners, put yourself forward if you can. Because you can you can you can shape sort of policy and resources in that way. I was going to say actually, in terms of you know communicating with the department, how can school business managers put their views across in terms of these tools or any suggestions they have to improve? Because some people listening might be you know quite far down the road with benchmarking and, and have some ideas and opinions about mm-hmm. it. I mean, there's often there, there are often call outs for people to feed back onto groups. I don't know how you know the. I'm going to say the sort of average, and, and again, I don't want to sound sort of disparaging here, but how does the average school business manager feed that back? You know, the, there's a danger that sometimes the department engages with, the, you know, the unions, with ISBL, with the Confederation of School Trusts, with the big trusts. I think, mm. you know, they do they do look at social media, they do look at blogs, you know, they, they do look at people who are influ- influential in saying things. And I think, again, it's sort of incumbent on those of us who do occasionally get the ear of people at the department to sort of amplify the voices of other people as well, to sort of, you know, so to listen and to to take to take counsel from others within the profession who are actually at the sharp end or who... who are finding that difficulty, you know, whatever by whatever means we can. I, you know, it's um, there was a lot said said about the the you know the need for teachers, and the department did listen, and Ofsted listened to class teachers, and I think it's the same. Um, you know, those of us who who do have some influence should be saying, "This is what practitioners are telling me," and, and certainly, you know. I, we have 11 schools in Dowat and and I do try and ask the practice because the, the practitioners, the school business managers, their experience of everything is incredibly different to yeah. mine. It's it's much mm-hmm. more sharp and, you know, much, much more, sort you know, in terms of um, dealing with testing, dealing with the financial systems, doing actually producing information for benchmarking. It's much more sharp end. So, you know, we have to we have to ask. Well, what's your experience like? What what's it? What what reaction do you get from from your school leaders? And feed that in. And I mean, I have been fortunate to to be involved not just with the teacher um, CPD standard, but also developing the um, frameworks for the MPQs, particularly at um, head head and exec level. Um, so making sure mm. that some of this some of these the training around benchmarking is now feeding into the training for future head teachers and future trust leaders. So, you know, it, it, there, there will be change, but 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 it, it you know it's, it's like turning a big oil tanker, isn't it? Everyone has to do their bit, don't they? And I do some work writing for and delivering the MPQs mm. and the new MPQs that are coming in yeah. as well that you've just referenced. I always think that's doing my bit, especially when I'm delivering. I talk to head teachers and executive leaders about the importance of the school business manager and the financial management. Yeah. And I wouldn't say go as far to scare them necessarily, but I do give them a bit of a reality check. I think I think I funnily enough, I do the same. And it's an and often, you know, <laughs> quite hard because you you want to give them like screens and screens of detail, 
And they, you know, sometimes yep. can get a little bit upset. And, and what I say to them is I'm showing you this because you need somebody on your team who is doing this. And, and it isn't me on my own in an 11 school mat. You know, if, if I was doing it for all of our schools um, at any great depth, that's all I do. So, you know, I need I need the, the practitioners to be confident and to have a place at the table and to be to be able to sort of talk confidently themselves about these issues. Absolutely. And you get some people, don't you? They come and, you know, they come in at the start of the day and they think they've got it, don't they? They think they know. <laughs> and by the end of the day, they walk out going, now I know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, I think I think so. And and um you you'll speak to lots of head teachers who will always say you know they wouldn't be with without their business manager many many heads and trust leaders are really um that you know they see that person as someone who is effectively you know operational delivery chief of staff doing all the stuff that no one else is an expert in you know who else wants to yeah get, get down and dirty with the details of uh health and safety audits and uh, risk assessments. Yeah. But, but it's a really important, you know, I, it's a really important side of um, the business of running schools, isn't it? And it can be scary, can't it, you know, for head teachers and executive leaders. So, you know, the premise I go in is, you know, you need to know all of this, but actually what you need more is a person that knows all of this and that you can work with very closely that will give yeah. you that information, support your decision-making and have you back, you know, they'll warn you yeah. if you're going to fall in a hole. Yeah. And, and, and that's, you know, that is the key thing. And it's very much around how do you know what you need? You know, I, one of the, um, one of the exec educator courses I've delivered on is how do you know new CEO? How do you know what a good CFO looks like? How do you know that person yeah. has the, the skills and the status and, and 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 the determination to do the job you need them to do are you paying yeah sufficiently to get the person you need to do it and and that because there isn't a real you know there isn't a defined pay structure is there in in the way and i think we will see a move to trust leader pay scales perhaps reading the school teachers mm. review um board's document it it's very much around teacher leaders, isn't it? There's still, you know, support staff, non-teachers. There's an element of the workforce on different contracts and and, and yeah. somehow therefore forgotten in terms of leadership and accountability. Especially talking about CFOs at, you know, multi-academy trust levels mm-hmm. in some very big multi-academy trusts, you yeah. know. They should be on leadership contracts, whatever that looks like. There has to be a parity, especially when we're getting to that yeah. level. And I, and I think increasingly the bigger trusts will have contracts for executive leaders that that are, you know, mm-hmm. we're moving from what was the traditional exec head type contract plus support staff contract. There is a move towards one sort of set of expectations for ex- executive leaders, a pay scale for executive leaders. I mean, you know, teaching teaching at leadership level is, you know, I know, I know this from the benchmarking, it is actually a, at leadership level a well-paid profession. You know, the research shows that, that, that if you get to sort of deputy and, and headship, you, you will be well-paid. 
by comparison to others. I mean, it, I suppose the question is, if a CFO or a COO is, is de facto deputy chief executive, should their salary be commensurate with the, the sort of executive leaders on the teaching side? And, and I think that's the way things are going. And certainly, I've seen at least three sort of CFO jobs now advertised over £100,000 a year, not not just in London. So, you know, there's, I presume the salaries are there because there is a, there's a shortage and that's the salary that can be commanded. But, but the expectation would be someone at that level would surely be expected to be operating, you know, full, at full C-suite level, isn't it? You're, you're sort of, uh, you're going to be, you, you are going to be seen as an integral part of the leadership team of the trust. But, but you can, you know, you can extrapolate that to school level as well. I think it comes back to, doesn't it, what you said about asking them, do you know what a good CFO looks like? Do you know what skills you need to recruit in this role? I ask the same question and it's because they'll go, oh, yeah, CFO, I need one of those. And then I go, right, so what's a good one look like? And they go, um, yeah, <laughs> qualified. <laughs> go, That's one part of it. And, and also, what do you want the structure of your trust to be? Do you want, yes. you know, your business services running and reporting to one strategic leader who looks after that side and reports to you? Or do you want to have direct reports of HR professionals? I, you know, do you want those executive leaders reporting directly to you? And it will depend on a trust leader's preference. It will depend on the quality of applicants out there. And, and what will work best for the trust? You know, my, my view is kind of keeping business services. And, and again, at school level, you know, keeping business services under an overarching remit for me works best because one person ultimately is is the decision maker, aren't they? They're, they're sort of looking at it holistically. I wonder, and maybe you'll have the answer to this, you know, is there any benchmarking or research around trust structures in this way that, that we're talking about? Because I have this conversation as well. What What's going to be right for your map from day one is not going to be right year three. And if you're going to grow again on year five and how the messy bit in the middle sometimes, as I call it, you know, yeah. how do we look at that and what have we learned? Trust? Yeah. I mean, interestingly, the, the, the audit firms do a little bit of this in, in their benchmarking reports. So, Preston Reeves are one of the one of the big firms that do do a big benchmarking report, and there's a couple of others. I think UHY do one. Um, and what they're mm. what they're starting to look at is sort of um, you know the size of the of the executive, the 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 pay of CEOs and CFOs, putting it against the sort of central services charge as well, because that's a good benchmark of what. We're seeing central services charges now go from few at two percent up to sort of ten percent, and you know, in, into sort of central resourcing and beyond. But the 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 majority seem to settle around about five percent, so that gives you a good sense of structure. Um, but mm. I don't think there's been any real concerted research. I mean, you know, it's inter it's interesting because potentially that could be drawn out of, you know, some additional questioning for school resource management advisors to put, you know, to put some information in. It, 
because of the way trust, the way that they can allocate resources, it's always going to look a little bit different. So a school that, or a trust that has sort of central resourcing, very little will be allocated to the schools, whereas others will, you know, the whole budget is allocated by the central services charge. Where does it go yeah. wrong? I mean, we, we only see where it goes wrong in the notices to improve, don't we? And that seems to me to be mm. often around smaller, not not always, but frequently smaller trusts trying to gear up to growth. And that there's a question mark, isn't there, whether too much distraction around growth and building central teams actually takes away from the focus of running the schools. Yeah, I have said that's the messy bit in the middle, isn't it? You know, it, it's chicken and egg as well, isn't it? Because yeah. you can talk about aspirations for growth yeah. and you have an intent to grow, but what schools you want and what you get and when you get them and yeah. how you're going to resource them and what issues they come with, you know, there are so many variables that it becomes such a minefield and it can become a huge distraction. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it can. That You know, that may be one of the, looking back, that may be one of the sort of areas where perhaps the programme, the academy's programme hasn't done as well as it should be. I think, you know, I think it will settle, but I, you know, will we settle into larger, more bureaucratic trusts? And, and does that stifle innovation? You know, do, does that, there's a danger that too much benchmarking and too much kind of reliance on metrics stifles innovation and creativity and, and, and um, risk-taking, I, I guess, is, is what I'm I'm looking for, you know, part of you know some of some of the early mats, the sponsor mats, took and take huge risks, and and with, you know the rewards are high. But but is it right to do that sort of when schools are at stake and public money's at stake? It's become quite an open market, hasn't it, in terms of commercial mm-hmm. terms because mm-hmm. you know we had these orphan schools you know yeah that maps wouldn't take on because they were too much of a risk is that the market that we're in that will continue to be and what happens to those schools yeah I mean I think that's one of the biggest challenges to the sector and, and obviously I mean I'm working the faith sector now and um you, you know there's talk about setting up a kind of sponsored sponsored church multi-academy trust for faith schools that really haven't anywhere to go until there are more faith mats, because, again, it's a sector that's been slower to convert. You know, one of the issues for me is is that these schools can't be helped on the cheap. So schools in difficulties Mm -hmm. need investment. And the money that multi-academy trusts hold generally is money that has come for the pupils of the schools. You know, everything we take at the centre, unless we've been successful in getting sort of sponsor capacity grants or grants for uh, delivering teaching school hubs or, or particular, you know, other, other targeted grants, everything is per pupil funding. So we have to be careful, don't we, uh, using that and sharing that to share the risk of a school that yeah. actually needs intensive support. And, and there is a move by the department for sort of academies to risk share because if they have, you know, again, it goes to the heart of, well, you know, you've got reserves and it's public money, it's taxpayers' money. And if you're not using it, why aren't you, you know, why can't you use it to help this school? So, you know, we, yeah. when we're sort of spending and what, when we're doing our financial planning, we need to make sure that we, you know, 
we know what reserves we need to keep, um, but they should be the minimum. The majority of what we receive in year should go to people's education. That's, you know, it, it's annual funding and our reserves should be proportionate to that to, to you know, buy equipment ongoing, you know, to capitalise um, certain projects. But but beyond that, I, 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 I do have some some philosophical problems with orphan schools not getting the funding they need, either capital or revenue, in order for a turnaround to happen. Because, that you know, often you often see a kind of car crash of poor leadership, don't you? Lack of investment in capital over time, yeah. lack of the ability to, to sort of recruit good leaders, leading to sort of demotivated teachers. So poor resource planning. So, you know, you, you know, bad lighting, bad windows, bad chairs, bad tables, bad buildings. Teachers who who need a lot of investment in order to be better teachers, and they probably will be better teachers, but again, would need good leadership and, and training. So, you know, if the, the the real solution to to, to the orphan schools is, is is having very clear funding guidelines, and then holding the trusts to account around using that funding to to really invest singularly in that school to get it where it needs to go. And that was at the heart of the original Sponsored Academies programme. In my experience, I don't know if you found this, but there is a correlation between the schools who are struggling both financially and with education outcomes. That car crash has been a long time coming. There's been lots of things that have unraveled behind the scenes that for whatever reason have been missed or not put together. The crash happens. And usually those schools are in financial difficulty, like you say. That I very rarely come across a school that has got poor education outcomes that is in a good financial position. Yeah, you, it, it, it usually goes hand in hand because it's been, you know, there has been a lack of the kind of standards difficulties will be because there hasn't been a real concerted sort of bit of planning around lead, you know, they, they haven't been making the choices. They haven't been using any tools to make choices. It's like, Behaviour's bad, let's get a behaviour mentor. We need yeah. more pastoral staff, so let's get learning mentors. But it, it's not, those staff then aren't then deployed to the most effect and there's no kind of analysis of impact. And that's just the sort of, you've, you've usually got a, t- a churn of senior leaders as well, don't you? Because there's no time to do anything. Yeah. And, and often local authorities that don't have the teams anymore to provide that intensive support so you know it's, it's a it's an unvirtuous circle in many ways and, and all that time you know there's been a lack of capital investment schools in difficulty schools that have falling roles will not attract capital in, so, so again it becomes a sort of cycle of despair they, they can't attract capital funding to improve the buildings and they won't attract more pupils until they have better standards and if they do get better standards, they then don't have buildings and new shiny academy opens down the road, new free school. That's where, where families will choose because it has the facilities. So, you know, the, there's an awful lot of inequality um, across the system. I, I do think, you know, academy trusts can and should be the agents for change. Um, but but there should be there should be funding really that is sort of front-loaded for, for the most challenging schools and for the most disadvantaged communities. Yeah, 
because school improvement comes at a cost. We talked about struggling schools in terms of education outcomes, but just school improvement generally in terms of context, resourcing that or resourcing change even can be challenging. It's incredibly challenging. You know, if you have to restructure a school, it, it takes time. So restructuring a curriculum model can take a couple of years, can't it? Because you've got to see courses through. Yeah. Closing a school takes time. Often we'll see schools with just a year 10 and 11 left as they sort of work their way through and work their way through examinations. Um, e- even restructuring a staff, a school staff body, teaching staff contracts have very long contractual terms so it's not easy to do and you know there'll be likely quite good you know more than better than statutory contractual terms around restructuring not not to mention the sort of unrest it causes you know trying to do a restructure whilst you're trying to deliver excellent education is is probably the hardest thing a school leader is ever going to do it can become yeah, it's, it, I, this is, I always say to schools, you know, again, it goes back to looking at the metrics. Try and, try and re- if you need to reduce staffing, try and do it before you've hit the wall. Try and, try and sort of have yes. your shadow structure and, and kind of run your overstaffing. Know, know when, you know, what subjects people leave in, you know, when, when the profile of your staff, when people may retire. Try and do it that way because it, it's, the, the disruption of putting a school through a, a, a big restructure is, is not conducive to sort of good, good teaching and learning, I guess. I always say that every resignation and appointment is an opportunity. Don't just yeah. recruit blindly to the same roles if you don't need them. Change it if you need to. You know, look, at is it the right level? Is it the right job description? Do we need it at all? Those yeah. are all questions to ask every time, I think, that you receive that resignation yeah. letter. And interestingly, you know, as a director of finance and business in a secondary school, you know, going back to 2014, maybe even earlier, those were the questions that, you know, I started to pose and challenge with and started to sort of look at groupings and, and ask those questions sort of before it really got fashionable, just to just to sort of protect ourselves from really running heavy deficit budgets. And, yeah. and that way you, you sort of, you got from where you were to where you wanted to be without, without a lot of pain and, and challenge. But, but I'm not sure that that, you know, I'm not sure that's the case necessarily in the sector as a whole. And particularly if a school feels that it's challenged and it feels that it's under threat of Ofsted, then, you know, it's kind of human nature, isn't it, to try and spend your way out of it yeah I'm just, I'm, you can't see me but I'm smiling because so much of what you're saying I'm just going yes I say that yes that's <laughs> what happened to me I get that <laughs> you know you'll often get but but you know you you don't understand our context and why can't can't just give us more money and you know it, it's you 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 sort of what what hurts is sometimes and I, I focus everything I do I, I'm actually focusing on outcomes for children not just in that year but the next year and the year after so if you use all your reserves in year one year two and year three's children are going to suffer because you're going to have to make Mm. deep cuts then but often you're seen as this awful bean counter who just doesn't understand education 
but but actually, you know, what we've got to think about is the you, you mentioned stewardship before, and we are the stewards of school. You know, we're I, I'm not going to be in my job that I'm in in 10 years' time. I, because of my age, I, I will be, you know, retired most likely by then. Um, but the schools will still be there. So it's my job at the moment to work with our leaders to make sure that we have the right, right structures and that we're constantly sort of reviewing to have the right structures so that in 10 years' time, the baton is handed on and that school is in good shape and it's popular and the standards are good and it has enough reserves and it's got the best um, facilities in a state that we, we could possibly give it within the constraints. And often we, you know, our decision-making gets sort of tied up in, in, in the personal, in the adults, in the, in the um, interests of the adults, not the children. And I, yeah. I sort of encourage people to think about the experience of the children and sort of, yes, it might feel uncomfortable for us if we have less autonomy or we have to make decisions about um, restructuring or we have to cut our TLR sort of complement. But, you know, we're paid, school leaders are well paid. So we're paid to make those decisions and to, to sort of, not leave the school in in such a state or the trust in such a state that the educational impact of the schools is damaged. I always say that school business leaders at all levels are almost the conscience of the business and I don't mean that other school leaders or teachers or head teachers or CEOs don't have a conscience but to come into that conversation about some of these decisions that you know leaders are, are making mm-hmm with that step to the side and saying, but is that the right thing to do? It may feel like the right thing to do today and for tomorrow, but this school, this trust is going to last longer than we are. Are we making it the best interests of those future yeah. children? You know, yeah. I've had that same conversation. We have to make decisions that are bigger than us, even if they feel yeah. awkward and uncomfortable. And in the short term, maybe annoy some people. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. And, and you know, I guess... You know, when you're you're not actually accountable for teaching the children, you know, mm-hmm. don't have to quite look them in the eyes in the classroom, maybe it's slightly easier to take a step back. So, you know, teaching is, I think it's a profession that, you know, all levels is, it's highly sort of people-oriented. You know, you're very much in touch with children, with families, with other staff. Sometimes it's it's hard to step out of the emotions, isn't it? And I think I think working in an academy trust actually you can you can sort of step out and and step 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 out and look a bit bit wider. But I think a school business professional can also do that, particularly those people who you know there are school school business professionals out there who have been lawyers who have. Um, you know, worked in um, big retail organisations, run their own businesses. That they're people who choose, like like I did, who choose to work in a school at a particular moment because it suits them, and because taking a pay cut or having your your salary um, fractionalised over the holidays works for you in that moment. Um, you know, mm. and 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 that's that's an important thing to sort of keep saying that you you have got this 
high, highly skilled workforce, really, that you could, um, you know, that, that has seen other sectors and, and will perhaps have been through um, some difficult decision making in, in other sectors and will bring bring some uh, not not common sense but just just that sort of unemotional view yeah I've spoken to a couple of school business leaders recently about this and saying you know having worked in the sector for a long time I'm really interested to hear what new people from outside think of the profession you know why they have chosen to yeah. come here how they got here and I think yeah. everybody who says I've become a school business I don't know many people that who have left. We've all stayed. Even I'm not in a school at the moment. You know, I, I'm doing something different. But we could all go to the private sector and get a lot more money. But we, yeah. we choose to be here. However, we got we choose to stay here, don't we? I think we stay because I think it's it's dynamic. And I think for for me, in terms of job satisfaction, you know, you can love or hate the academy's program, but but it has it really has expanded horizons career-wise for for those of us who want to Mm. perhaps expand our horizons a little bit. I think there is still the challenge that some people coming from outside just find, and it goes goes to that sort of status question, doesn't it? They they find themselves sort of a little bit not listened to or a bit marginalised and, you, you know, the where you don't understand, and then, you know, that sort of slight sidelining. So the, the more we can talk about, you know, you use the professionals around you, understand the professionals mm. for, for, for head teachers and for trust leaders, understand what professional um, people you need around you, and, and use them in a way that any other business would use them, you know, be it PR, be it marketing, you know, you, you, you don't necessarily you don't necessarily need to cut corners on it it's like that uh, we used to say in the early days of the csbm it was spend to save wasn't it there was a, it's it's a dirty word now but the entrepreneurial business manager kind of would um oh yeah <laughs> would, would sort of you would you would take some calculated risks in order to implement things to save in the future I cannot believe how wide-ranging we have gone with this conversation. We have gone from benchmarking to to academies and the future of education. Literally, I could sit here and just talk to you all day, to be honest. <laughs> when, when you get business managers talking, you know, I think one, one thread that comes through when I meet people is we all actually see the aspects that where change would help the sector. But often it's yes. only one voice in one school, in one trust, I think, you know, that that professional discourse is really important, isn't it? Even if it's challenging for people to hear. Well, I hope that this podcast has helped that conversation somehow. I hope that people listening have found it valuable. I hope that you are less afraid of benchmarking if you are listening to this, but also I think some of the discussions that we've had, that's what this podcast is about. It's kind of trying to put that voice out there and put that perspective out there and mm. and hopefully some powers that be might be listening. <laughs> we hope so. <laughs> we hope so. Yeah. If anyone's got any questions for you about benchmarking or anything else that we've talked about today, where can they find you? So best best place to find me is on Twitter. It's at MikeOnM. Um, I do use that across other networks as well. So LinkedIn and Instagram, so it's always the same. 
And you know, I advocate SBL Twitter on every podcast. So if you are not on Twitter, please come and find us and tell us what you think about what we've been talking about. I am sure there will be some opinions about what we've said today. (laughs) If you have any questions or you'd like to continue the conversation about anything you've heard in today's episode, you can find my cons details and mine in the show notes on my website at www.ljbusinessofeducation.co.uk. If you love this episode, make sure to check out the previous episode, episode 35, to hear Mycon talk about her SBL journey, the evolution of the SBL role, what the future holds for the profession, and how SBLs can prepare for it. If you're listening to this podcast on an Apple device and you like what you've heard, it would be great if you could rate and review the show as it makes it easier for others to find it. Thank you so much to everyone who has left a review already. I read and hugely appreciate every single one. You can rate and review the show by selecting the show in the Apple Podcast app, scrolling to the bottom and either tapping the stars to rate and or selecting write a review. This show is available in all of the podcast directories. Just make sure you hit the subscribe button in your chosen podcast player so you don't miss an episode. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next week.